Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. I'm just really happy that it's October 1st and it doesn't feel freezing out. Uh, it was nice to have a good kind of sunny October morning. Hopefully it sticks around. Uh, this morning we're continuing our series in the life of Moses. Last time we looked uh, together with Gilson and he shared with us the second period of 40 years in Midian in which God was preparing Moses for the work which he was about to do. So Moses flees Egypt and God was doing some humbling. Moses is in a foreign land for 40 years. And today we move on to a pivotal moment. The 80-year-old Moses is called by God, sent by God for a, for a mission. God explicitly gives Moses the call to act on his behalf in the salvation of his people in Egypt. And this is a massive shift. Uh, there's a massive shift after this encounter and, uh, that, that we're going to talk about here this morning. Moses is sent by God, and after that encounter with God where he meets uh, God at the burning bush, everything changes. I think while the notion of receiving a call or being sent can stir some excitement, what holds far greater significance is not merely uh, being uh, called or the one being called or the one being sent, but it's the identity of the caller, the identity of the sender and the underlying intentions behind them and what they are trying to do. You see, in the call given to Moses, God is revealing the kind of character that he has. And so we know the God of Moses is, is also our God. And so as we're looking at this together this morning, really what we're going to see is we're going to see God revealing himself through this calling. It's not so much about little Moses, as much as it is about God and his merciful intentions. We just saying that he is good. That is who he is. And we're going to see more of that revealed this morning, I believe. So I believe we should all be sort of on the edge of our seats. I believe this morning we can learn deep things about the God who was, the God who operated in Moses' time, that he's the same God who operates right now. And so here's what I believe the text shows us this morning. I believe we see that God is revealed as the holy and compassionate God who knows our needs and initiates a plan to respond. And does such a profound truth not deeply resonate and cohere with the work of Christ our Savior? How relevant this point is for us to ponder that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Moses who called him out is our God who initiated a compassionate plan through Christ. Oh, the parallels are amazing. I, I pray we see them. This message should spark grand joy and thanksgiving in light of the kind of God that we have. So let's stand, if we're able, to read the scriptures and see the amazing details and how this unfolds. So we're starting in Exodus chapter 2, right before chapter 3, starting at verse 23. God's word says this, Now it came about that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help, uh, 
And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a land uh, to from that land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite now behold the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me furthermore i have seen the oppression with, with which the egyptians are oppressing them therefore come now I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, Lord, and we want to see you as you are. And so, Lord, we thank you for the revelation of who you are through your word. And we pray, God, that we would understand you and know you deeper from this word that you have revealed to us in your great grace. Oh God, would you glorify your Son, who is heir of all things, here this morning. And Lord, would we be transformed today, Lord, to leave this place different, understanding who you are, and who we are, and how good you are to us. God, we pray that you would be pleased to do this miracle now in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So if there's one thing I sort of want us to keep in mind, and I'll keep reminding us of it this morning, it's that God stands as the central figure here. He is the main character. He is the Holy One. He is the compassionate responder to, to cries. And He is not in need. He lacks nothing. But rather, in grace, chooses to include Moses. You see, while we may be tempted, again, to make much of, of Moses as the main character, he's not really the main character. Like I said earlier, this is more so about the caller, not so much about the calls. He is the one who initiates this compassionate plan in response to the cries of his own suffering people. It's all activity of God is what we're seeing here. We are seeing God move, and we're learning how he moved then and how I believe he moves now. 
And so this morning, we are going to examine three activities from this text, three activities of God, things that God is doing that, that is going to encourage us to recognize him more in our lives. And I believe those three activities are the following. We see that, first, God gets our attention. Second, God reveals his own holiness. And third, we see compassionate action. The compassionate God acts. And so, let's get right into it. God gets our attention. Starting at verse 1, God seizes the attention of the lowly. It says this, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now remember the narrative so far, right? Moses came from Egypt, and he lived in royalty there. Moses now has fled from Egypt, uh, and in his, in his way, in his response to how to help his brothers, did not work. He has failed, and he killed an Egyptian and fled from Pharaoh, who was hunting him down. He was a failure. And then he, he married the daughter of a priest of Midian. He settled in a foreign land. And this is even indicated by the name of his son, Gershom, according to chapter 2, verse 22. He is in a foreign land. He has, as Gilson shared with us, he has been being humbled by God. And this is significant this is significant. It's significant to know that this is the entirety of what Exodus tells us about that second period of 40 years in Moses' life. Not much there. That's, I think that's intentional. Probably because it was lowly and mundane and ordinary, especially compared to his former life. I, I frankly think Scripture doesn't say much about this period because there isn't much to say. He's not that great. He's not fantastic. And now, from chapter 3, verse 1, towards the end of this 40-year period, Moses is a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock. It's not even his own sheep. He has been reduced to a lowly shepherd. And again, this description is not at all unrelated to what I believe God intends for us to know. The order of the narrative isn't random. Recall Chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, which we read, it describes God hearing the cries. He's, he's doing the seeing. He's remembering the covenant, and he's noticing his people. And now, immediately, the next verse we see is, atten is intended to elaborate on what's God going to do next. And you would think it would be this big, awesome thing, and indeed it gets there. But before that, it zooms in on the lowly shepherd Moses watching the flock. Isn't that interesting? The immediate next verse of the narrative is zooming in on unexciting, mundane, lowly work of the shepherd, Moses. I believe God likes to reveal himself to, to lowly people. He has a habit of revealing himself to shepherds. Doesn't he do that in Luke as well when, when Christ is entering the world? I think it's because the lowly and the ordinary contrast the significance of what God is doing. Indeed, it's interesting that God's response to the cry, God, God, it says that God heard the cries, but he didn't hear them while Moses was uh, you know, in authority and then choose to use Moses in Egypt. In fact, when Moses was in authority in Egypt, things went horribly wrong when they were trying, when Moses was seeing his brother in need 
he ended up killing a person. But yet, it's while Moses is a lowly shepherd at the ripe age of 80, doing mundane work in a foreign land, not even shepherding his own flock, reduced to a lowly shepherd in this stage of life. And it is here where the Lord meets Moses. Friends, it is this sort of person whom God reveals himself to. God, in great grace, wants to get the attention of the lowly. He wants to use the lowly. This is the sort of person who will encounter God, not because they are great, but because they are not, and he himself is. You see, it's a glorious contrast between lowly human creatures and a glorious holy God. God wants to encounter those that are lowly and humble. He wants the attention of those who are lowly. As, as the Apostle Paul wrote, his power was made perfect in weakness. And the Lord chooses to use lowly creatures like you and I and to get our attention. So brothers and sisters, I, I challenge us this morning to stop trying to be great to beckon God's attention. He is not impressed. He was not impressed with the royal Moses. He humbled him. It is the lowly and the humble whom God intends to reveal himself to. God wants to use the lowly, foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He's, he wanted that then. He wanted that in the New Testament. And friends, he wants that now. So we must see ourselves as we are. We must see ourselves as low creatures. Just as Moses needed to be humbled to this place, we ourselves must also be humbled and understand that it is not our greatness that accomplishes anything, but it is his greatness. And so I pray to those that today, or for those who have not yet become aware of their own lowliness, that those who have not yet been reduced to nothing would be reduced to nothing. And that sounds like a harsh prayer, but that is a great prayer. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when you are in that spot, the God of the universe wants your attention. And he'll seek you out. Oh, that we would be there. That we would be lowly and encounter a great, gracious God. Oh, I pray we would we would. We would be there and have that view of ourselves and be humbled by the almighty hand of the Lord. Next, we also see that God is sovereignly guiding the unexpected to this encounter. This was not Moses' plan or intention, right? Moses fled. Moses was just doing some shepherding work, yet somehow he has this encounter. Let's read verse uh, 1. Moses led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. So again, we must continue to keep in mind that the narrative that is being told about the main character, God. God heard his people and was responding to his people. And now he does so through the lowly Moses. But also notice that Moses, he wasn't even looking for God. At the age of 80, Moses was not at all expecting this encounter. I think the text is clear it only is describing just shepherding here. 
There is no mention of Moses initiating the process through fasting and prayer and intense intercession for Israel. He is engrossed in his everyday affairs. But here's where the story takes a remarkable turn. Somehow, he ends up at this mountain, Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. Now, the shepherd Moses at this time, I don't think understood the significance of this place. But any ancient reader of the book of Exodus would know the significance of this location. This is the mountain of God. This is another name for Mount Sinai, where God would later inscribe his commandments and reveal his word to the people of Israel. God tells Moses, in fact, later on, to bring the people of Israel back here once they are free from Egypt. This is where the covenantal God would further reveal himself and propel forward the history of the nation. And Moses, not at all understanding the significance of all that was to come, not at all expecting God, is providentially brought to this place where the angel of the Lord was and where the angel of the Lord would speak to him here. Moses, merely going about his day-to-day, is about to encounter the living God. God, unannounced, unbidden, unsought, and unexpectedly guides Moses to Horeb and shows up visibly through the fire to begin a process of initiating his grand plan for his people. Friends, this is how God operates. This is a testament to to how God leads. He has the power to guide us in our everyday situations. He is behind the scenes orchestrating something, and we're not even actively seeking him half of the time, right? And he orchestrates the unexpected to encounter him. Look, uh, you may be going through your daily activities and perhaps you're attending church here even this morning just as part of your kind of usual plan. However, it's no coincidence that you're here. It's no coincidence I'm here. It's all a part of the Lord's sovereign leading. Even if you're, you're not really seeking him or expecting him for those who he has called... He is planning an encounter. And if you have never encountered him this morning, perhaps the day is the day where you're going about your ordinary routine and you just happen to hear my voice and maybe, just maybe, the Lord is trying to get your attention and he brought you to this place and he allowed you to go onto the internet and hear this message or however you're listening. Oh, I pray that you would just embrace that encounter for what it is. And understand that the Lord sought you when you were not even paying attention to him. It very well could be today the day of salvation for you, friend. Today is the day of salvation. Would you respond? He is perhaps in grace using these circumstances in our ordinary life to bring us to this place where we can respond to him. This is how he works, even in our daily plans and our daily routines, to bring us to that encounter. What a sovereign and gracious God we serve, where Moses was not at all looking for God, but God encountered Moses and and sought him out and brought him to the mountain of the Lord. He chose to bring Moses to the mountain of God, a place of revelation where the Ten Commandments would be inscribed. Let me tell you about another place of revelation that you and I have 
that some people view as rather ordinary. It's that Bible that's sitting on many of your laps. God wants to encounter you there, friends. Would you open it up? Would you recognize that, that he is seeking you? Oh, Lord, bring us to a place, God, where we open up your word and encounter you. Oh, I pray he sovereignly leads us there, that place where he may be found. We see this as well, that God captivates us with marvelous things that seem impossible. Emphasis on that word seem, by the way. Verse 2, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not being consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burning up. And this was a marvelous sight, is what the scripture says. It was something to behold. It even uses the word behold there. This is something grand, something to see. The same way a person can be captivated, again, by an optical illusion. If you've ever seen one of those, you kind of look at it and it gains your curiosity and you say, huh, interesting, and you're kind of mesmerized by it. I would like to imagine that this was sort of Moses's stance. He's there and he's watching this saying, how can this be? A little perplexed, but it's a marvelous sight nonetheless. And so he goes and investigates. What we see God doing here is God is using the beauty of an observed event which supersedes expectations, grab the attention of Moses. And it is a marvelous and great sight. And I think this is actually quite significant because it shows the process precisely by how, how God shakes a person up to, to bring them to an awareness of himself. From the narrative, again, we, we kind of sense Moses' lack of expectation, just going about his ordinary life that's sort of implied there, just doing some shepherding. And what is it that disrupted him? What is it that piqued his curiosity? What is it that captivated Moses? It was an observing of seemingly impossible events that he just couldn't make sense of. That was a great sight for him to behold. The bush is on fire, yet it is not burning up. Now, the normal expectations of anything on fire is that it burns up. If this building was on fire, you give it enough time, it's going to be burnt up. There will be no building here anymore. Now, add the fact that this is in the wilderness, probably a drier place, right? And we see a bush that is burning, and it's burning, and it's burning, and it's burning, and it is not being consumed, that is what Moses saw, especially in this dry environment. You'd assume it would be burned up even faster. However, the fire was burning and burning continuously, and it was this paradox of things that didn't make sense in Moses' mind. God intentionally created a stark contrast that Moses couldn't make sense of, and it drew him in. That is how he got Moses' attention. And I believe there is some significance here for us. Firstly, in Scripture, frequently fire carries with it symbolism, usually a, a few symbols, dual symbolism perhaps, representing both purification and judgment. And friends, isn't it interesting that the Christian is just an ordinary person, perhaps akin to that bush 
experiencing purifying fires that make us holy, and yet we are not consumed by the wrath and judgment of God. Our lives could very well be this marvelous sight that gets the attention of our friends and of our family, that causes people to investigate where they look at you and they they sense a paradox and, and they're confused and they say, why are you not burning up under this pressure? Oh, friends, that is the Christian life. And moreover, it is our small life stories and these small miracles of attraction that point to the even greater sight that they may behold the seemingly impossible work of the gospel. That is the most marvelous sight of all. That God became man, putting on flesh and dwelt among us. How could this be? How could such a thing exist? That he experienced the fires of the Father's wrath, yet was not consumed and rose again from the grave. Because of his own essential perfection and holiness, he rose. Oh, and this message should captivate us. As, as it captivated Moses, just seeing even just the physical picture of this. Oh, how much more should we not be captivated by the full revelation of God and Jesus Christ and his work? May this grand sight, this mystery that has been revealed, somehow pique someone's interest this morning. That he uses these marvelous things to awaken curiosity for those who he has called Oh, and if you are one of those who he has called, that you would begin to be intrigued now as we describe this person of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray that the the Spirit does this work in us. Next, we see that God, once he has Moses' attention, what does he do? The first thing he does, even before commissioning him to do anything, again, this is very little to do with being sent right now. This is God showing Moses who he is. And what is the first thing he does? He reveals his holiness. That is the first thing he does. Verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, here I am. First we see that this is very personal. This is not, um, you know, broad or for, for, for just the masses it is in one sense, but in another sense, it is personal. God is calling Moses by name. Moses is in the middle of his investigations, curious just, you know, to figure out what this is, and he hears a noise. Out from the bush, God calls Moses by name. Moses, Moses. In this moment, something shifts. God had Moses' complete attention, and he calls out to him personally by name. You see, God is grand and infinite, immense. Yet, in this immensity, he also necessarily knows each small creature by name in his omniscience. He knows your name by, in his omniscience. He knows my name, and he calls out to each and every one of us, And he beckons us, and he calls us by name. He speaks to the lowly. He knows not not only the mere name, but he knows everything about us, our history, everything behind that name. He knew Moses, 
as the baby in the basket. He knew Moses as the man that, that killed someone in Egypt. He knew Moses that had fled. He knew Moses the foreigner. He knew Moses the shepherd. He knew all of these details. And here he beckons Moses to come. And then he personally calls him out. Moses, Moses. And he will soon reveal his holiness personally to this man. And Moses, he replies, here I am. He responds verbally, this, this is me, Lord. Here I, here I am. Oh, friends, that we would respond to this personal call. Some might even be hearing it now, maybe with your own name in place of Moses's. I know that I heard it when I was 11 years old, and the Lord unexpectedly, he, he unexpectedly visited me in the quiet of my own room and said, David, David. I said, here I am. Today, that might be the day for you. Maybe this seems mundane, but there is something special when the Lord is calling you out. He's, he wants to reveal his holiness to you. He wants you to understand who he is personally. God wants to reveal himself to you. God wants your attention. Would, would you respond to that call and, and see him as he is? See his holiness. Stop running. Respond to that call. He knows you, and he wants to reveal himself to you. But there's some, some, something interesting here. It sounds kind of good at first. Oh, he knows me. That's, that's awesome. But what is it that he's revealing He's revealing his holiness. Look at what happens next. Right after he calls Moses excited, here I am. It says, then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God calls out Moses, Moses, two times, signifying what he was about to say was important. This whole thing, very important. And before he commissions Moses, before he sends him out, he says, do not come near here. Take off your, your sandals, Moses. You need to understand who I am. You need to understand my holiness. Moses says, here I am. The first thing revealed to him was God's immense holiness that separated him from God. Or separated Moses from God. Before we understand the graciousness of the gospel message, before we go out and try to proclaim and, and be ambassadors for Christ the way Moses uh, was called to do, before we do any of that, we need to understand his holiness and his honor. We need to see him as he is and not a dumbed down, insignificant version of our own mind's creation. Oh, there are so many that are serving that false God that they have created in their mind, that God that is not holy. But he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God, is necessarily honorable and holy, and he cannot cease to be. Distinct from all things. Before commissioning Moses, he makes sure, Moses, you need to know my holiness. He tells him to do two things that indicate this holiness. First, to stay, uh, to stay away. 
He says, you cannot come close because I am separate from you. Second, he tells Moses to take off his sandals. Now, both of these commands are indicative of the presence of the Lord in this place. Remember, this is the mountain of God. This is where the presence of God was, where he was revealing himself during this time. And the idea of staying away is conveyed here. And so, uh, you know, God is so separate from man that Moses, he has to keep his distance He may die. This is the presence of the Lord that we're talking about. Remember what happened when they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant that that was said to contain the presence of the Lord in that spot? If they touched it the wrong way, they would die. We see an example of that. If, If they went behind that curtain to the Holy of Holies inappropriately, they would die because the God we have is just too holy. Now, removing the sandals is kind of interesting here. This was a common practice when one entered someone's dwelling place. However, it's clear that though God dwells here, there is not something extremely hospitable about this environment. (laughs) And it's not welcoming. He just said, right, stay away. But he's also telling him, take your shoes off. Kind of interesting, kind of weird. Moses is terrified, in fact. He hides his face in the next verse. Therefore, we must conclude that although this entails the idea of God dwelling here, the presence of the Lord here at Mount Sinai, the idea of reverence and fear takes precedence as the dominant theme. But he calls Moses to stay in that place. Strange. Some of us spend so much time running from God, don't we? Running from that holiness. Here we see God saying, don't come near, but take off your shoes and stay a while because I I live here and you've entered my house where I'm dwelling. Here's the idea behind all of this, brothers and sisters. We are not to nonchalantly approach this holy God. We must mull over in our minds the attributes of this being we have in mind when we loosely use this word, God. That there is no being that is greater than this being. If you can think of that being, that being's God. That there is no being more powerful. And that this being is necessarily due honor. We must take off our sandals before him. He is separate from us. And even the seraphim and in heaven, the angels are hiding their face. They're covering their face and they're declaring, holy, holy, holy. Before commissioning Moses, before using Moses, even before introducing himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what he's done in history and acknowledging uh, all of that, he just says, stay away, my holiness needs to be acknowledged. And it's only after that this holiness is acknowledged that God then moves forward, describing the compassionate acts, which we'll get into later. And, but friends, isn't this similar to the gospel? It is only after one acknowledges the holiness of God and the holiness of the God that we have spit upon that the gospel of grace becomes so much more beautiful. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who allows us to approach the Father. According to Hebrews 10, we can enter the most holy place. We can go to the presence of God and not be consumed because of the grand work of Jesus Christ. 
This is good news, but to truly see the goodness of this good news, you have to understand holiness, and you have to understand the separation that exists between man and God. There must be a fearful trembling before him. We have offended not a God of our own imagination, but the most holy God. And it is this holy God, the same God mentioned here, who Moses hides his face from, who is not allowed to, to, to go close. It is this God who Christ has restored us to. And the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the very Spirit lives inside of me and inside of you if you believe in Christ. What a marvelous allusion to the gospel here. Do not take this for granted, this great grace we have been given to interact with the Almighty, to be invited into the triune love of God. But again, this is only good news. You will only understand the graciousness of His grace if you first understand His holiness. I pray we do. We also see this, it produces, not only does it separate and there's kind of some of this going on, it produces a fear. It says, verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This great being who is too holy to even approach reveals himself by stating that he is the God of the patriarchs. This is not some lesser being. This is the infinite God. The God who created the heavens and the earth. This is the God who made a covenant with, with Moses' forefathers. God makes it perfectly clear who he is. Now, think about the narrative again so far in Exodus. Consider the weight of what the author might be trying to convey here. Consider that God is introducing himself as a God of a currently oppressed people who Moses, in his own strength and own ideas, failed to save and has, been, has separated himself from this people and he's living in a foreign land. I don't know how thrilled Moses would have actually been to hear this. It sounded like he's sort of going away from God's people. He kind of wants out. He's, he's, he's living in a foreign land after all. Moses, again, he saw the poor treatment of his brothers. He tried to do something. He failed. He's been becoming um, hunted down. He, was, he became hunted down by the Pharaoh and is fleeing. And perhaps Moses, for many of these years, just using some sanctified imagination here, was upset and sad, angry. I mean, think about the vast amount of emotions you would have under that set of circumstances. But now he's standing before God. And God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is the appropriate response? The hiding of his face. A profound recognition again of God's holiness and his own unworthiness. And, he, and here he stands before the God most holy, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, a failure, a murderer who has become a lowly shepherd and who must hide his face. This is the only logical response when one recognizes that this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is before them. And it is the same holy God of the patriarchs that is the same God we ourselves are talking about this morning. 
this God whom we should hide our face before, for we are so unworthy. And we, again, must rightly grasp his honor and his majesty, and it's only natural for us to have fear and hide our face in his presence. He is too grand for us. And before you are ever used by God, you must fear God. Notice this is about being afraid of God, is what it says. You must hide your face before him. You must see him as he is and be terrified. You must see him as he is and be terrified. God is not that God that can fit in our head. He is infinitely greater than us. What do I mean by this? Sounds kind of very countercultural to, to what many are saying. If there's ever been anyone who's been at sea, right? The massive wave in the storm. Think about what that wave would produce in your heart if you are alone at sea realizing your own insignificance and then there is this thing that is so much bigger than you that is totally out of your control that that you can do absolutely nothing most of us know what I'm talking about now when I say fear all right now add the fact that this is the creator of the heavens and the earth who was due our total honor and obedience and Moses the sinner stands before this God. This is what was probably felt, probably not even, uh, probably much deeper than what I'm describing here. If you've never experienced what I've just described, the fear of being before God, might I consider that you never encountered God? Because God, due to his own immensity, by his own necessary nature, must cause us to hide our face before him. I mean, the angels hide their face before him. Never mind we who are sinners. It is only with this sort of understanding that God's holiness should produce fear that one can truly, again, appreciate the gospel. Truly appreciate that good news that we may enter the holy of holies. That this God that is so immense, this massive wave beyond our control has chosen to live in us. Do you now see the glory of the gospel? Do you see the mystery that we are invited into? This is not a little God we serve. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The true God. The God of honor. The God who necessarily must be feared because we are just lowly creatures. And it is with this understanding in the middle of hiding his face afraid to look at God that God reveals his intentions in arranging this meeting. And they, friends, were intentions of compassion. Verse 7, and the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. Amazingly, though God is holy and though every man a sinner and rightly do death, and though before him the angels cover their face and Moses himself is afraid and terrified, he has such compassion. 
He sees the oppression. He hears the cries of his people, of captive Israel. He is aware of their suffering. This compassion drove God to act. Notice that it is God speaking about his own observations, right? This is all initiated by God. This has, again, very little to do with Moses. This is all about God. Recall uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 particularly. It's the same sort of language. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. Uh, God saw the sons of Israel. God took notice of them. Indeed, God is holy. But friends, God is compassionate. He sees us. He is holy, yes. But he also loves you. And he's compassionate towards you. Why it is, I do not know. Who is man that he is mindful of us? Friends, likewise for us, when we in humility recognize this God, the immensity of who he is, and cry out to him and say, Lord, help us. This same massive wave, right? This same huge God that that should destroy you works for you. He does not need to. He works for you in grace. That is amazing. That is amazing news, friends. And the same compassionate God who acted on behalf of Israel, who felt Israel's needs, is the same God that you and I can encounter today. Again, it's so important to have this, this Old Testament picture of God. Some, some modern people like to say, oh, that was Old Testament. You know, God's not. No, God is still holy. But praise be to the Father he has sent Christ. The same compassionate God who worked for Israel works on our behalf in compassion and his grace. When you're overwhelmed in your sufferings, when you're overwhelmed in whatever's going on, when you're oppressed by the burdens of life, and most importantly, when you're shackled to sin, he voluntarily, of his own good, compassionate will, hears you and chooses to act. Oh, if you would cry out to him, he, he would hear you. And, and this being, stop running from him. Yes, he's holy, but he's compassionate. Stop running from him. Cry out to him. Cry out for mercy and surely the God of mercy will respond. When you understand the dire situation of sin and cry out to to God and and the holy God and say, God, just have compassion, have mercy. I, I can't. You're too big. You're too big. He also will save you. He also will will show you great grace. The God, the holy God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of great compassion for the lowly little creatures that we are. And that is good news. Next, verse 8, here's what he says. And notice, I've been highlighting some stuff. I've been highlighting anything that is involving God speaking and referring to himself. I, my people, Again, God is the main character, but look at this, right? He says, verse 8, So I have come down to rescue rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is rather intriguing. We'll see in verse 10, God commissions Moses. 
But before he does, he, he lays out his good plan and reiterates something very important. Notice, again, the subject who is performing all of these actions in verse 8. It is God. He is the main character. All of this originates from the will of God himself to act. We have not only a God who hears the cries, but a God who responds to those cries with action. And, and look at what it says. This language is very interesting. This holy God who is so far above us, it says he came down to rescue he came down to, to deliver his people. God who exists in unapproachable light. This God who is holy, who the angels cover their face before, saw his people and had compassion to act despite our low creaturely nature. He, in glory, came down because he had compassion. He initiated the plan of compassion for his suffering people. And again, what a wonderful allusion to the work of Christ. He in heaven, worthy of all praise, infinitely beyond us, saw mankind and was moved to compassionate action. God, through the incarnation, literally came down in great humiliation of himself and went to a cross to rescue us and to bring us to a land which we did not deserve. I pray that this melts us. He picks us up and saves us through his own will. Again, the terror of this infinite, holy God turns into a massive wave of grace because of his own good nature and will. Amazing. Then, once we experience this, he decides to actually use us as lowly creatures to share the compassion he wants to display with others. God does not need to use us at all. But look at what, what happens. Verses 9 and 10. Again, look at all these pronouns. He's reiterating this is how he's feeling. He's the one acting. And look at what it says. It says, And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. And now, uh, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. After explaining all that he was going to do in compassion, that he came down to rescue. He doesn't say, I came down to, to send you. That might be part of it. But in verse 8, he's very clear. I came down to rescue them. Very clear. And after explaining all of this, that he came down, God does something that some people might find very odd. He decides to send Moses. God has said, he is the one hearing. He is the one coming down to deliver. He reiterates all of this in verse 9, that he has seen the oppression. And then verse 10, he says, and I send you to Pharaoh. And if God, this almighty God, he certainly does not need our help then the only conclusion we can really have, logically, is that God is graciously inviting Moses to participate in this plan. God is the main character of the story. God does not need Moses. Yet, God sees the lowly shepherd, the murderer who hides his face, and he says, I will send you. Likewise, he in grace 
invites us into a plan. He has chosen to send us to the world to be the body of Christ. Think about that. We get to be the body of Christ, participate in his plan of action on the world. Oh, the church, church, we should appreciate this as a glorious act of grace that God has invited us to participate, to share in his acts. Amazing. He has prepared, it says, before the foundations of the world, he's graciously chosen us to participate. In this plan, it says he has prepared good works for us to do before the foundations of the earth. All who are his are graciously invited to be a conduit of God's compassion on earth. And, and just like Moses, it is not because we have anything to offer God which he doesn't already have. Rather, it is because he in good grace has chosen us. We talk about calling a lot and we get confused. Oh, I'm called to this and it's really us-centered. And the calling of Moses, oh, Mo, what a big hero and all these people who are big heroes of the faith. Friends, here is the true calling. Here is what the New Testament says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, God has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And so those who are his hear the call of salvation, participate in his plan. They, oh, I pray people are drawn from their mundane, ordinary experiences that God grabs your attention with this message that you recognize his holiness. You don't run from it, you recognize it. And then I pray that you fear and that you tremble and that you yourself then acknowledge that God is a compassionate God. It is only then, once you understand those facts, that God will use you to participate in this gracious call. You must first hear. You must first, uh, the Lord must bring you through this process which he brought Moses through. Got to understand salvation, understand that you're lowly, that you're a sinner, that you're separated from God. You can come no closer. Then you must be terrified. Hide your face before the Holy One. Only such an understanding of, of the evilness of evil will bolster the true understanding of the graciousness of grace that has been bestowed from God in Christ. And it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive them and wash us clean. And then He will even grace us further by using us in His plan this is the blessed life of happiness that we are restored to in Christ Jesus. I pray that many who hear this message, I pray that this message is the beginning of that process for you. That this message is God's way of getting your attention so this can all unfold according to his plan. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we thank you God, that you are a sovereign, holy God. But Lord, you are in the same person, a gracious, compassionate, loving God. Oh God, and it is that paradox that draws our attention. Oh Lord, may you open the eyes of those whom you have called and use them mightily to glorify your name in your grace. 
Oh God, may, may Christ be magnified and may his work be central in all of this. We pray in Christ's name, amen.